Thank you for listening to the Valley Point Church podcast. We are currently in the series, Blah Faith, a delightful series on how not to be. We hope it's a blessing. Well, good morning. Good morning. You may not know that I actually began as the chaplain when I was 12 years old. That's not, that's not true. That's not true. But it is a wonderful um, privilege to be back at Valley Point Church. Thank you to Pastor Eric and Tanya for the wonderful invitation. I was kidding before, but sometimes I don't get invited back to churches. So that's a good, this is really a privilege there. Um, when I think about 24 years as the university chaplain, I think I could summarize my vocational calling to Eastern University in a statement I often tell, oftentimes tell students. One day I couldn't spell the word chaplain, and the next day I became one. So for those of you that are still discerning vocational callings and worried about the future, about what you're going to do with your lives, be encouraged. God is creative and has a sense of humor. That's how I kind of came to Eastern University. And it's a privilege because Pastor Eric and his wife Tanya's daughter, Clarice, uh, attends Eastern University and is an early childhood education major, entering her junior year, which is amazing. Those semesters do move quickly there. And also, um, Coach Kevin Wallace, who's a member of uh, Valley Point, is our men's lacrosse coach. And uh, he's done wonderfully well as a coach over the last number of years to really build a winning program. So there are some connecting points here at Valley uh, Point Church. I was reflecting just recently about my first adjunct teaching assignment. Adjunct teaching is where universities hire you for maybe a course or two, pay you very little money, and expect very high excellence. It's just the way the adjunct world you know, goes. But you need experience if you're thinking of teaching. And so 30-odd years ago, I stepped onto the campus of a Bible college in northern New Jersey. Uh, truth be told, this college does, is not in existence any longer, hopefully not because of my teaching, right? Well, we don't know that. I, I, I just still got to look at the, the surveys there. But I was going to teach American religions as one course and maybe an intro to the Bible. And so, as you might imagine, going on an interview for the first time to teach at a college, you wear a jacket and tie. I was a bit nervous. I had my resume in hand. And I was thinking through what might be the conversation that I would have with the dean of the Bible college. I mean, I was meeting the dean. So I sat in the waiting room, and then the receptionist called me in. Mr. Modica, the dean will will now uh, have, talk to you. So I, I can remember this so vividly. As I was entering, uh, the dean got from behind his desk, shook my hand, and said the following, almost before I even sat down in the chair that I knew was provided for me. He said, so tell me, what's your position on eternal security? What? Aren't you going to ask me my name? Aren't you going to ask me, how was the traffic? There was any traffic coming here? You know, a little small talk before we get into eternal security. For those of you who don't know about eternal security, um, you know, it's a, somewhat of a debate within Christian circles about whether a Christian who persistently and intentionally and consciously keeps denying Christ could lose his or her faith. It's a, it's a big debate 
Hebrews 6, you can read some passages that we wrestle with. But to think that that was my first interview question, honestly, I don't even recall what I said. I don't know if I fainted and got up, but I did teach there, so I must have said something compelling that he thought, all right, I'm not sure what he said, but rather we'll, we'll hire him anyway. But what, I don't remember anything else about the interview except for that first question because I was so stunned that that was really what was going to determine whether I would teach at this Bible college or not. Now, let me say this, friends, and this is very important. I'll probably say it a couple of times throughout the message, is theology is important. Doctrine is important. Study is important. I mean, I have a Ph.D. I, I would, you know, although my wife reminds me that means permanent head damage. Uh, but I will say this, I would be foolish to say it's, it's all about belief, don't study, don't, we don't care about theology, because I've taken a good portion of my adult life studying to try to discern a calling into ministry, but using both my mind and heart. So doctrine is important. As a matter of fact, it is so important that the earliest church gave us something that we use, at least I think we should use, to be able to help us understand what are some of the boundaries of the Christian faith. You have to believe in some things to be a Christian. It's not just whatever you feel and whatever you think. So have you ever heard of the Apostles' Creed? Right? Apostles' Creed. It morphed into the Nicene Creed a little later based on some of the early Christian controversies. But the Apostles' Creed, to me, something that was composed by the church probably at the end of the second, early third century, was something that helps me understand what are the essentials of Christianity. The essentials. It's good to talk about essentials, because sometimes I feel Christians are more tempted to talk all about the non-essentials and think those are essentials. So I want to read the Apostles' Creed, just so you, you can hear that I'm saying it's important to believe in things, and doctrine is important. You know this creed, perhaps. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, was uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Let me just stop there. Not Roman Catholic, nothing against Roman Catholics, but Catholic, small c, means universal, the Holy Universal Church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, if we could take all Christians in the universe and we could just rally around the Apostles' Creed and not necessarily define ourselves by our differences, doctrinal differences, denominational differences, um, all these sometimes petty differences, I think we would have a greater witness in the world. Now, I, I realize that there are differences. So, I know that there's differences between Roman Catholics and Protestants and Protestants and Orthodox. So that's notwithstanding, but I just think we have so much in common because of Jesus of Nazareth. I know that sounds so trite and maybe, why? 
This guy has a PhD and he says it's all about Jesus. Well, it is. At the end of the day, the Apostles' Creed, if you, if you remember as I read through it, the largest section of the Apostles' Creed deals with Jesus. We get the most information about, of the, in the Apostles' Creed about Jesus. God the Father, we get a statement, creator of the heavens and the earth. Holy Spirit gets short shrift in the Apostles' Creed. You just got to believe in the Holy Spirit. That's it, period. But isn't it interesting? We get a much of the creedal statement is about the relationship one would have with Jesus, the nature, the history, him as a person. When, you, when we read the creed, when I read the creed, you notice there's only two other historical persons in the creed other than Jesus. I would think Joseph should have been in there. At least it was his stepfather, right? But no. You don't see Peter, Paul. You see two people. Who were they? Mary and Pilate. Life and death. The historical Jesus. Life and death. So I believe in doctrine. But I think to have blah faith, because this is a wonderful series and so creative series, I was so excited to know of the topic. To have blah faith, I think, means we worry more about doctrines, getting the right doctrines rather than the right relationship we ought to be striving for with Jesus. Remember, I like doctrines, but I think sometimes I am disappointed with Christians, including myself, that sometimes we trivialize or we make mountains out of mohills based on our differences. So, case in point, you've heard this thing called the internet, it's really amazing. It's staying around, the World Wide Web, right? You know, as a university chaplain, I am so far behind the students at Eastern University with regards to social media. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out Snapchat, it sounds, sounds painful, snap, you know, like a rubber band or something. But often, um, you know, students as well as faculty will send me links to things, say, Joe, uh, why don't you, you know, can you give us a comment or think through this with me? Right now, there's a big controversy, if I can call it that, between a very popular pastor on the west coast of a very large church and a friend of mine, uh, Bishop Tom Wright, who's a New Testament scholar. I know Tom, and it's about, I, I think, a misreading of what, Tom Wright understands the death of Jesus to be. Not to get anything too technical. And I understand there could be disagreements, but the way it's the blogs, the emails, calling people heretic, heretics. You know, we throw that word around. Every time we disagree with somebody on anything, you're a heretic. That's a pretty serious allegation, right? Or you're not a real Christian. You're not a real Christian because you might read scripture, and you might have a way of seeing something slightly different. We have a lot of differences in Christianity. Think about things like baptism, right? Some churches baptize infants. Some baptize believers, believers' baptism. Are we going to say to all those who do infant baptisms, heresy, you're heretics. We also have differences about the Lord's table, Right? You celebrate the Lord's table, Lord's Supper. Oh my, we can spend the rest of the time on that, but we won't. But isn't it amazing how much energy sometimes we spend on the differences and how we're right, and you know what? You, you just have it all wrong. So doctrine is important, and we should aspire 
And I think this is, I have the sense that this is a, think, a thinking church, that you are encouraged to read and to think and to study and to debate. Very critical. Because when the world looks at Valley Point Church and other churches, they want to know that we've take, we're taking honestly our faith. We're trying to wrestle with what it means to live in the world. Here's the greatest challenge, I think, for the church in the 21st century, is that we are struggling with the tension. Now, hear me out. We're struggling with the tension between identity and relevance. Identity and relevance. Meaning, identity. What does it mean to be a Christian church in the 21st century? That's a good question. Because we also want to be relevant. Relevant means we want to do things like the culture, so to speak, to be able to draw people to Jesus. But you know, I've been in some places that they all are relevant. They all become relevant. They all become relevant. Ah, everybody's relevant. And then I ask somebody in the congregation, tell me what the gospel is. God loves me. Friends, that's not the gospel. Not in the New Testament. God loves me. That's what I call Barney. You know, remember Barney on PBS? (laughs) I love you. You Remember Barney? I, I mean, my kids are old enough now. You know, everyone hugging. Love you, love me, love you. That's not the gospel, friends. That is so far from the gospel. Now, I'm not trying to be critical here, but I'm saying sometimes, and also on the other end, you could have so much of identity, and you're not relevant. You're not even looking to reach out to young people. You know, young people, millennials, in large measure, are really rethinking about their role in the church. Some have actually taken a hiatus because they have felt that the church has not been relevant. The church doesn't talk about science or sexuality or issues that are important to millennials. Some of you are millennials here. And I work with millennials. I guess I'm old, but I still work with millennials. The point being is that as Christians, and we're going to look at our text in a moment, as Christians, we want to hear the voice of Jesus. As we, as, we, as we attempt to be disciples, and I use the word attempt because it's always a journey. Following Jesus is not an event, it is a process. You have to be committed to follow this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. It's not an event. It's not like, well, I'll go on a retreat every few months and I'll get my you know, discipleship, discipleship juices. It's about the daily mundane living that we need to follow Jesus. There's a passage in the New Testament. So I teach the Bible. I teach an introduction to the New Testament to all first-year students, second semester. I do a section. And the first day of class, they're all excited. That doesn't happen in a month after. You know, they get a little weary, but they're excited. And I try to tell them in the first class that when you think of the New Testament, this passage, this episode of Jesus and his disciples, it is the fulcrum. It is the prism, it is the lens, like my glasses that I wear, that all the New Testament can be seen through. The fulcrum, the lens. You know this episode, and it's in your bulletin. It's printed out the script. You know this episode. It's a very famous episode. But to me, it may be the most important question that's asked in the New Testament. Let's read this together, right? Um, I'll read the text. You can follow along. It's in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, 
Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus said to them, meaning the disciples, but, but, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter quickly raises his hand. I'm just a little bit elaborating on the text there. You are the Messiah or the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. But I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is a very interesting passage. If you know anything about the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, it's one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or when I was teaching high school one time, a wise kid looking to make a joke said, oh, the four Gospel writers, Zeppo, Harpo, Chico, and Groucho. But you have to be a certain age to get the Marx Brothers. I'm sorry. This doesn't go over well with the millennials. Um, Four Gospels, the first one being Matthew. You know, this is Matthew chapter 16. It's like in the middle of the Gospel. And up to this point, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the kingdom of heaven. So just think, the first 15 chapters or so, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew's gospel shows Jesus as the teacher of Israel, he, as, the, as the teacher of Israel. Different than the other gospels, Matthew shows us that Jesus is a teacher, much like Moses was a teacher of Israel. Jesus is a teacher. Also, Matthew was one of the original disciples, so we have a, a pretty intimate account of Matthew's version of his gospel. There's only two writers in the New Testament that are original disciples of Jesus. Think of the first gospel and the last gospel, Matthew and John, were with Jesus from the beginning. Luke and Mark were not. Okay, just to give you, there's going to be a quiz right after. Uh, no, there won't. There won't be. So here we have the first 15 chapters teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And then the last part of Matthew's gospel is interesting. Right after chapter 16, Jesus begins to do what? To foretell his death and resurrection. He's, he's saying, I gave you the teaching, now I'm going to need to leave. Wow, that's really interesting. And this chapter, to me, is the identity chapter. This chapter, to me, is the fulcrum or the lens that I think really hinges on everything in the New Testament. Meaning, Jesus asked some really interesting questions, right? And there are two dimensions. So we'll put up the questions. They're the two-dimension questions. Who do people say that I am? Or who, who people say the Son of Man is? And what's the next question? The next question is, who do you say that I am? Let me step back here and say the most important question in my estimation in the New Testament is who do you say that I am? Or who do we say Jesus is? Right? That to me is compelling. Not whether you hold to infant baptism or believer's baptism, although those are important. But at the end of the day, the question that remains for the New Testament writers is, who is Jesus, and who do you say that he is? It's interesting. This passage takes place in Caesarea Philippi. 
about 25 miles north of Galilee. Now remember, well, you might know that Galilee is the place that Jesus did most of his ministry. You have Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. That's my, that's my map for you today. And so Jesus was somewhat of a homebody in Galilee. Remember, he was born in Bethlehem, but he really hung out in Nazareth. That's why he's called Jesus of Nazareth and not of Jesus of Bethlehem, although he's born in Bethlehem. So he's in Galilee, but he takes them 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is a Roman city. That's what I, My point is, it's a city that if I'm standing there with you, you would see all the deities, all the deities, God, uh, deities to Baal, deities to other Greek and Roman gods, because people had many choices, right? They were, it was religiously pluralistic. And it's interesting to me that Jesus didn't do this in Jerusalem. He doesn't ask this question in Jerusalem or Bethlehem or Nazareth, right? One of the Jewish, mostly Jewish cities. He asked the question of identity when there were many choices to be made. He asked the question of identity when you could see the pantheon of gods and religious objects that people were giving their allegiance to. I think identity is oftentimes forged out of contrast. We choose our identity in a sense of our religious identity, but we know there is so much out there that we can't choose. You choose your identity out of contrast. So these disciples, I wonder what the conversation really was like, because you know Peter, right? Peter's got his hand up. He gets the pop quiz. He gets the quiz right. I teach, and I've been teaching for a number of years, and there's always two types of students, if I can paint so broadly, in the class. Ones who um, are passively trying to learn the material, and you almost have to encourage them. Oh, we're starting class. It would be good to have a notebook out (laughs) and a pen, unless you just have a a kind of a memory you remember. everything. And then there's the other student who has his or her hand up the entire class period. Who, who just wants to feel affirmed by the professor. That's Peter. I could just imagine Peter and Jesus and the group, you know, anytime there was a question, Peter says, I think I know, I know, I know, I know. The problem here is, and, and I say it's a problem, because Peter gets the right answer on the pop quiz, but he's going to fail the course. He's going to fail the course. So he did well on the pop quiz, but he's going to fail the course. And he retakes the course when Jesus reinstates him in John 21, but that's a whole other story. I mean, but, you know, Peter denies Christ three times. He fails the course. As a matter of fact, he fails, if you read chapter 16 of Matthew a little further, you know, Jesus says, I'm going to have to suffer. This comes right after this. I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to die. I'm going to be at the hands of the religious leader. You know what Peter says? I'm not going to let that happen. You see, I'm not, oh no, not on my watch. And so Jesus says, thank you, Peter. No, he doesn't say thank you, Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Wow, I have never seen that as a Christian bumper sticker, like when you're driving. Get behind me, Satan. Oh, okay. Whoa. Think about that. Think about how Peter gets the pop quiz correctly. He checks the box. All right, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Good, got that. But he doesn't pass the course. I wonder, in my own life, how many boxes I think I need to check without really understanding what course am I in. I'm in a course. I'm a disciple. Jesus is the professor. 
and I need to do his work, his assignments, well. Identity is critical. And sometimes you can see that identity uh, in this passage, right before this episode, what happens is that the Pharisees and the scribes are demanding a sign. They want Jesus to perform things. They want Jesus to be relevant. If you read chapter 16, take time this week, just read the full chapter. It seems like there's an identity relevance issue going on in that chapter where the Pharisees and scribes say, Jesus, if you say you are who you are, if you are who you say you are, then do all these miracles. And, you know, Jesus is so unnerving because he doesn't. Right? You'd think he would because that would prove to them that he's who he is. He doesn't. Because Jesus is more concerned about identity rather than relevance. At the end of the day, it's who we call Jesus and how we follow him there. I'm going to um, give you a word that at first glance will look overwhelming, but I think it's an important word, at least something that I think is important when you understand the nature of the relationship. The word is ontology. Now, that's a big word. If you want to impress friends, text that word to your friend this afternoon. Just say, hey, are you ontological? No, you wouldn't do that. But ontology is a word in philosophy which talks about the nature of a relationship or the nature of being. Now, in philosophy, there are things like metaphysics, you know, how do we know what we know, and epistemology. Well, actually, metaphysics is really more about what's really real. Like, how do we know what's real? Epistemology, how do we know what's real? But what I love about this is that ontology says that the importance is the nature of the relationship, who I am, my identity, and who am I in relationship with. I think Jesus is asking his disciples not to pass a theology exam to be a disciple, but to be in an ontological relationship with him, to know who he is every day that they go out. Let me ask you something. If you want to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, what do you need to do? Right? That's, I pastored a church, so we had discipleship program you would complete certain booklets. I guess it was the navigators. I'm really dating myself, which is terrible. But, and we would have people do different booklets, discipleship booklets. You do this one, this one, and, you know, and it's really good. I do believe in discipleship, and I do believe it's a process. But in the New Testament, friends, what's the only requirement for a disciple on the front end? What, what does Jesus ask? Two words, follow me. Jesus doesn't say, listen, here's a quiz, here's a test. You know, you have three tries on it. Do it, and then when you get 80% or more, you can become a disciple. I mean, it's harder to get into, you know, Eastern University. We require at least a GPA, some, you know, class standing. It's so much easier to be a disciple. Jesus just says, come, follow me. Now, who, why would you follow Jesus in the first century? I think because of ontology, that they knew that this man and a relationship that I could have with him would be different than any other relationship that was on earth. It wasn't about doctrine, although doctrine is important. It was about the quality of the relationship. And I think the Christian church in the 21st century needs to focus more on the quality of relationship 
with Jesus of Nazareth. I think that's so compelling. I'm a university chaplain, and we deal with students on the continuum of faith, right? They're all coming from different religious traditions. I think students at Eastern University who are still grappling with Christianity want to know that it's plausible. You know the word plausible? They want to know that it's plausible, that Jesus is winsome, that Jesus is curious. When is the last time you read Scripture and said, boy, that is really interesting, that's curious? The problem with me studying the scriptures all these years is that it becomes a little bit academic. It becomes too familiar. We need to make Jesus less familiar as the way we live into the ontological relationship. It's vital. What people, people really don't care necessarily our theology, but they care about who we're becoming in Christ. So to, to wrap up here a little bit, I have an article that I stumbled across in preparation for this message. You'll love the title because it kind of fits right in. I'll do just a couple of quotes. When Christians love theology more than people. It almost sounds like, oh my. It's by Stephen Matson, January 22nd, 2014. It's a Sojourners magazine article. So he begins, let me just say this. He begins by saying doctrine is important. I'll just, a brief quote. We should never give up on theology, Matson says, or academic study, or the pursuit of understanding God, the Bible, and the history and traditions of the church. But these things should inspire us to emulate Christ. Your study should inspire you to emulate Christ. Not that you prove that you're smarter than anyone else or that your doctrine is going to be super more important than anything else, but that you should study these things should inspire us to emulate Christ. Then he goes on here. Let's think about this. He writes, when I'm sick and you bring me a meal, I don't care whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian. When you're in the hospital and you send me a get-well basket, Matson writes, I don't care what church denomination you are. When you visit my grandparents in a nursing home, I don't really care what style of worship music you use, you listen to. When, you sho- when you're kind enough to shovel my parents' driveway, I don't care what translation of the Bible you read. Interesting. There. And then the last one, I do want to make note on this one. When you grieve alongside me during the death of a family member, I don't care if you tithe or not. Now let me just say this. Pastor Eric wants you to tithe, okay? So please give generously to the church. That's important, but you get the point of the article. The point of the article is that identity in some ways, trumps doctrine, right? It, it, it is more important. It's, it's an issue that we are living into a relationship with Jesus that defines everything that we do and say. My wife and I have four children, and what's been really wonderful for my wife and I, we are in the season of having grandchildren now. So my, we have three boys and a girl, so my oldest son, Benjamin, and his wife, Molly, have a four-year-old daughter, Olivia, who's the most beautiful girl in the world, bar none. I know you think of that as your own kids, but that's okay. And then they're expecting their second. So I can't wait. I keep asking my daughter-in-law, do you feel any contractions? It's really odd. Like, I'm waiting for the baby really quickly. But um, I can remember Dr. Tony Campolar at the university when I became a grandfather a few years ago said, Joe, do you remember what I told you about grandparents? Of course I didn't. He said, grandparents is God's reward for not killing your own kids. Isn't that great? <laughs> I am so, de- so I'm, confession here, I'm so delighted we didn't kill Benjamin. 
um, in high school. Usually the time in high school is where you decide whether they live or die, <laughs> so to speak. So I want to tell you just a brief story about our uh, third child, second boy, uh, Matthew. Three boys and a girl. Matthew is our third child. And when Matthew was about six or seven years old, my wife, Marianne, who's also a professor at another university, was going to be at a conference. And Matthew wanted to do something the weekend of his birthday. And he asked, so I asked him, I said, well, you can invite your brother, younger brother, Christopher, and then James, a a family friend, and we can go anywhere you'd like. And he said, Dad, Dad, can we go to Chuck E. Cheese's? Have you ever been, you know Chuck E. Cheese's? Now you know why most of our children suffer with ADHD. It's just amazing. It's just it's a crazy place, right? You go in, and there's kids running, and there's tokens, and you have a person in a mouse suit shaking hands that's making minimum wage, probably an Eastern University student, just trying to get through college, shaking hands, and you have pizza, and everyone's sweating, and, and tokens, and in tubes, and jumping, and basket. Okay. When you go into Chuck E. Cheese's, if you know, they stamp your hand so that they know which adult is connected to uh, which children, which is a very important thing. We live in a society that, unfortunately, that is a high priority of making sure you're coming in with the same number of children you leave with and they belong to you. So they stamp our hands. They stamp mine, Matthew, Christopher, and James. And then we just have a grand old time. I mean, hours in there, sweating and people, great, had pizza. Matthew came up to me at one time and said, Dad, this is the best birthday ever. I felt so good. Wow, he really loved it. Well, it's time to leave, and we need to leave. And it's a Saturday afternoon, so it's quite crowded. So we line up, and I always am the last one online. And so Matthew goes first, scan their hand, James, and then Christopher. Then when they get to my hand, they can't pick up the stamp, the ultraviolet stamp, perhaps because of sweating, I guess, or hair or whatever. So the man said, we really can't let you go yet, but don't worry. You need not to worry. We'll ask the oldest child in the group who you are, and then you will be able to leave. And I thought that was just made sense. I know people are behind me in line. And so I said, so Matthew happens to be the oldest. It was his birthday. He's the oldest one in the group. And so the gentleman said, can you please tell me who this man is? Can you just please tell me who this man is? And this is what Matthew said. This is what Matthew said. I've never seen this man before in my life. <laughs> For a split second, I wish I had no children at that time. <laughs> just thought, you know, the monastic life, being a kind of a monk or priest, just being by myself would have been so much. No, and then so the, the Chuck E. Cheese's employer, employee said, no, 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 you must not have heard me. Who is this man? And Matthew standing there, looking at me, looking at him, looking at me. I've never seen him before in my life. So I don't know about you if you've ever been embarrassed uh, in a way publicly where people behind you start going, look at him. He's absconding with children. We could tell. We could tell by the mustache. He looks sinister. He looks sinister. He looks like someone who doesn't belong in Chuck E. Cheese. Please. And so you could see people even moving away from me and the children. So we have to go. It's so, so uh, embarrassing. We had to go into a side room at Chuck E. Cheese's. I looked at Matthew like this. Like the, uh, if looks could kill, he would be dead, right? <laughs> Trying to change his mind. And he's not, he's, not a, he's not worried at all. 
my youngest son Christopher is looking up at me in a little bit of a stare. The friend we took, James, who's still a, a wonderful young man, he starts tearing up, thinking, we're never going to get out of here. Mr. Modica, <laughs> Mr. Modica is going to be arrested at Chuck E. Cheese's. And then I'm thinking, oh, my wife, what will I tell her? What would I tell her? So they put me in a back room, and they have to make photocopies of, like, license, and they ask me for my social security number. And so, really? And they made phone calls, and I'm thinking, my Lord, I'm never going to get out of here. Never gonna. And meanwhile, I'm looking at Matt saying, if you just say, and he just... <laughs> well, as you probably know, I didn't leave. And so I said to myself, Lord, this can be a, a teachable moment, or I could go to jail if I don't, if I don't handle this well. You know? <laughs> I was born in Brooklyn, raised in Queens, so I know, I know, I know anger at some times, right? So I said to myself, let me make this redeemable. I'm just going to be quiet, and we're going to walk to the white minivan. I'm going to hold the kids and hold their hands. I'm just going to walk. I'm going to try to deal with it. I'll deal with it at home. So as we're walking, I have Matthew on one side, and then Christopher's hand, and then Christopher's holding James. And we're walking like in a straight line, and we're in the parking lot going to the white Dodge caravan, minivan. And all of a sudden, Matthew stops. I said, what's the matter? Come on, let's get going. He goes, wasn't that great, Dad, in there? I said, I, are you, what are you saying? Is that great? What happened? You, don't you understand what you did? You didn't say it was your fault. He says, oh, come on. They knew. They knew? How would they know? He goes, he points at his face, then he looks at my face, points back and forth, back and forth. Then I realize we're in the middle of a parking lot, cars are zipping by, they think we're doing some type of yoga. I don't know where to go. He said, they know you're my dad. We look just like each other, except for the mustache at that time. But, and you know what? As strange as this story is, as a seven or eight-year-old, Matthew was convinced that the identity, genetic now, that people would have just known he was a Modica. That if my son walked through, he's 24 now, if my son walked through the door today, I think you would know he's my son even if I didn't introduce him, because of this strong identity, even mannerisms and so forth. He was convinced at around eight. Of course, we grounded him, and he just got off of grounding. It was 20 years, you know. <laughs> but hey, I, was, I said, wow, that's really great. It makes a great sermon illustration. What would it be like, think about it, if we would live into Matthew 16 with regards to the question, who do you say that I am, that the identity with Jesus would be so strong that people could not help notice that we're following him. That the identity is strong. It's almost like when Matthew pointed to his face and then he pointed to mine. That people, without even mentioning the name of Jesus, although it's good to mention the name of Jesus and share faith, but just that your attitude, the way you love your neighbor, the way you drive, the way you're in the workplace, the things that you say, the things that you don't say, all those things of identity are critically important. And just like Matthew, who believed that it was, without a shadow of a doubt, there was going to be, people would know we were father and son, what would it be like to live without a shadow of a doubt, people knowing we're disciples of Jesus, that we're following Jesus? To me, that's what blah faith is not. It's not about getting all the doctrines right, because I don't even know if I have all the doctrines. I mean, who knows? I mean, do I understand everything perfectly? No, of course not. Right? we got like 3,300 Protestant denominations in the world. 3,300. 
That's a lot of difference. Uh, but the point being, am I following Jesus? Am I answering the question each day, who do you say that I am, Joe? You are the Son of God, the Christ, the living one. And I'm living into that. I'm going to honor that in each situation. I'll end with a cartoon. I have this on my New Testament syllabus. So if you ever take class with me in New Testament, this is, this, this is the cartoon. It's a Frank and Ernest cartoon. A guy's talking to kids waiting for the bus. I think this summarizes a little bit of Matthew 16. School is mostly true-false, kid, but real life is all essay questions. Right? Amen. Amen. <laughs> right? Matthew 16, answering the question, who do you say that I am, is an essay question. It's not a check off the box or circle true or false. Friends, we just need to continue to live in, in, in this world, following Jesus faithfully. And when we stumble, to keep asking the question. And, and, and Valley Point Church, encouraging each other to do the same. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways in which you challenge us to follow you, to live into the teachings, but also to live in a relationship that allows us to understand the world through your lens, through your eyes. We thank you for the good people of Valley Point Church, for the things that they're doing, for the salt and light they are in the world, and continue to strive so that our faith would not be blah, but it would be vibrant and it would be encouraging. And it would be life-giving to all that we need. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you call Valley Point Church home or would like to make a donation, please go to valleypointchurch.com slash online giving. If you're in need of prayer, we would love to serve you in that way. Send us a message at prayer at valleypointchurch.com. Be blessed.